Well, it certainly is a joy to be back in this place after being uh, missing in action for a few weeks. I, I tell you, our schedule as a family has been pretty hectic the last month, and we've been here and there and everywhere, but uh, there is no better place than home, and, and we're just so delighted to be back here. I'm happy to be here in the pulpit and, and proclaim the Word of God to you this morning. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of churches and a lot of places, but I still say that there is, there is no warmer, richer fellowship than here at Ebenezer. And I say God bless you for that, because each one of you plays a, an important part in that. Christ is alive and well here, and, and that is just something to praise his name about. I truly believe that we have the power in the name of Jesus. And I believe that we don't have to fall. We don't have to sin. But the problem is, too often we don't take advantage of the power that's available to us as believers. The power is there. I mean, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. I believe that. But I know in my spiritual life, I fail and I fall when I don't take advantage of that power. When I try to do it my own way, when I try to fight the battle by myself. And so this morning we would like to expose one of the enemy's tactics. As we think about spiritual warfare... And that daily battle, we'd like to expose one of the enemy's tactics, and that is deception. And I believe this morning that deception is one of the most worn tools in Satan's toolbox. I say I believe deception is one of the most worn tools in Satan's toolbox. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 3, just for a few verses there for a springboard to the message this morning. And I'm using these verses as a way of introducing our subject because, in a nutshell, they capture the thrust of what we're looking at. And it's verses 12 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 3. Take heed, brethren... Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, in these three short verses, we have a lot of information. We have an outline here that could easily be developed into a message. I don't intend to do that this morning. But I do want to use these verses as a springboard to what I'd like to share. In these verses, we see the problem that we face. In fact, we see one of the enemy's tactics, and that is the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Now, sin has been defined as disobedience to the will of God. But sin is deceitful. <laughs> disobedience is deceitful. You know, the devil doesn't come to us and say, how would you like to just ruin your marriage? How would you like to destroy that relationship? How would you like to just wreak havoc in your church? No, he doesn't say it like that. I say sin disobedience is deceitful. And so we have here one of the problems. We also note the reality, and that is that no one is immune to this. He says, any of you, twice, any of you. I also note there's a warning here. Take heed, brethren. This is for me. This is for you. Why 
Watch out. Be on your guard. This could happen to you. We notice the end result. The end result is a departure or a separation from God. Notice in verse 12, the last part, in departing from the living God. You note the contrast there. You're departing from life and you're choosing death when you go down this road. But the Hebrews writer also gives us the answer. The answer to this problem, the weapon to fight this battle, and it's twofold. First is in verse 14 where we read, If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Dear people, the answer is holding on to the truth. Holding on to the truth. Truth is the greatest weapon when you're battling deception. Hold on to the truth. But the writer goes on to say that one of the ways that we hold on to the truth is by daily exhorting one another. Isn't that amazing? The writer doesn't say, you need to go to X number of Bible conferences. You need to take this course. You need to be a professor in this. You need to have read through the Bible 20 times. You, no, he doesn't say that. He says, he says the antidote to having an unbelieving heart, to having an hard heart, is to exhort one another daily. It's brotherhood accountability. That's what it is. <laughs> exhort. Parakaleo. That's the Greek word. It is literally to call near. But call near one another daily. Comfort one another daily. Encourage one another daily. That is the antidote. I just find that amazing. I wonder if sometimes we make too much out of it. Good, strong brotherhood relationships, a concern for one another in the, in the local church of Jesus Christ is the antidote for staying strong. Now, this passage speaks here of hearts that have been hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hearts that have been hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, children, when we talk about hardened hearts, we're not talking about that chocolate that you put on top of your ice cream. You know, you, you squirt that chocolate out of the bottle onto your ice cream, and it goes just like that, you know, in just a few seconds, hard as a rock. No, we're not talking about that. You know, this hardening that the writer is writing about here doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't even happen in a day or two. But this hardening here is the result of a, a little by little casualness, a little by little carelessness, a neglect, being indifferent. It's a result of a lack of sensitivity to God's word. A lack of sensitivity to the Spirit's still small voice. Kind of shrugging off those promptings. And after a while, we've grown accustomed to cutting corners, as it were. You know, this process is so subtle that it's imperceptible. We just don't see it coming. It catches us by surprise. Just a little neglect here. Just a little disobedience there. Just a lack of wisdom here. Just a little spirit of indifference there. We don't see it coming. And like I said, we grow accustomed to cutting corners, to making little allowances for ourselves. To the point that disobedience it doesn't seem so bad after all. It doesn't alarm us quite like it did at first. And we begin to 
live a life of compromise. It reminds me of a conversation I overheard some time ago at the bake shop where the one said, yeah, me and my wife just came through a divorce. And the other said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, no, it's all good, the person said. It's all good. I haven't been happy for a long time, and I know that God wants something better for me than that. Oh, really? God wants you to be happy at the expense of his word, at the expense of truth, you see. But it didn't start there. It started with just a little compromise here and a little compromise there. And before long, we're living a life of defeat. I've titled this message, The Deceitfulness of Disobedience. The deceitfulness of disobedience. The truth is, all sin, all disobedience is deceitful. It always promises more than it performs. Sin deceives us by making false promises of happiness, of wealth, of popularity. If you just have this, then you'll be happy. If you would just do this, if you wouldn't wear that, if you wore that, if you had one more dollar, ah, and on and on. I say sin makes promises, but does not perform. Albert Barnes put it this way. Sin assures us of pleasures which it never imparts. It leads us on beyond what was supposed when we began to indulge in it. The one who commits sin is always under a delusion. And sin, if one indulges it, will lead him on from one step to another until the heart becomes entirely hardened. Sin puts on plausible appearances and pretenses. It assumes the name of virtue. It offers excuses. Until the victim is snared and then spellbound, he is hurried on to every excess. If sin was always seen in its true aspect when one is tempted to commit it, it would be so hateful that he would flee from it with the utmost abhorrence. Someone else has said, has said that if sin were not masked, we would immediately see it as utterly horrible. But see, sin wears a mask. Albert Barnes goes on to say, Sin deceives, deludes, and blinds. Men do not or will not see the fearful results of indulgence. They are deluded by the hope of happiness or of gain. They are drawn along by the fascinations and allurements of pleasure until the heart becomes hard and the conscience seared, and then they give way without remorse. Jeremiah writes about people in that state who have no shame. They get to the place in their life. They've gone on and on and on. They refuse the word of God. They refuse, refuse the voice of the spirit until there's no shame. We see that around us today. Thinking about hard hearts and how that contrasts a soft, pliable heart. You see, picture, picture a rock. And you can pour water on that rock. And that water just, just rolls right off. That water doesn't penetrate. That water doesn't soak in. That rock doesn't appreciate the water. That's a hard heart picture. Over here we have a sponge, a dry sponge. And the water of the word is poured onto that sponge and it, it soaks it up. It soaks it up. And the more it soaks it up, it becomes so full that then it begins to run over. Isn't that beautiful? That's a picture of a, of a soft heart, a pliable heart, a heart that appreciates the word of God to the point where it overflows into its life 
into its world around. Now, along with the fact that sin is always deceitful, it's also true that the end of sin and disobedience is always death. Now, the devil won't tell us that up front. For sure not. But the Bible makes it very clear. The penalty for sin is summed up in God's warning to Adam there in the Garden of Eden. And he's speaking there of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2 verse 2 we read, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's the penalty of sin summed up in that. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And then the Bible reiterates that message throughout and in various ways. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Paul writes about how that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Death comes on the heels of a life of disobedience. The end of disobedience is always death. But once again, Satan keeps that well hidden in the hour of temptation. Because he doesn't want us to flee from him. Instead, he really wants us to fall for him. That's his goal. You know, it is true that we commit sins for various reasons. And our flesh is certainly a part of that package our carnal flesh. But behind every reason is the influence and the work of the master deceiver, the one who misses no opportunity to lead us into sinfulness. And perhaps the primary way that he does this, perhaps the primary way that Satan accomplishes his goal is by wearing us down. Or by wearing us out. And I don't simply mean physical exhaustion. Although we are very weak. When it comes to, to, to physical exhaustion, we become weak spiritually as well. But I'm meaning more than that. I'm talking about the method of gradualism. And I get that from uh, the writer Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee explains the work of the devil like this. Satan has in fact a plan against the saints of the Most High, against the Most High, which is to wear them out. What is meant by this phrase, wear out? It has in it the idea of reducing a little this minute, then reducing a little further the next minute. Reduce a little today, Reduce a little tomorrow. Thus the wearing out is almost imperceptible. Nevertheless, it is a reducing. The wearing down is scarcely an activity of which one is conscious. Yet the end result is that there is nothing left. He will take away your prayer life little by little and cause you to trust God less and less and yourself more and more, but a little at a time. He will make you feel somewhat more clever than before. Step by step, you are misled to rely more on your own gift. And step by step, your heart is enticed away from the Lord. Now, were Satan to strike the children of God with great force at one time, they would know exactly how to resist the enemy since they would immediately recognize his work. He uses the method of gradualism to wear down the people of God. Some sobering thoughts there for all of us this morning. Now, I would like to look at some examples in the Bible that paint a very vivid picture of the deceitfulness of disobedience. And you can turn to a familiar but very foundational story, and that is Genesis 3. We'll start there. Uh, we want to skip along pretty fast, hopefully, on a few stories here, examples from Scripture. But as you turn to Genesis chapter 3, these are some things that I want you to think about as we consider this thing of deception. Four things I want you to be thinking about. And the first is, disobedience is always deceitful. The second is, 
disobedience results in death. The third is, our disobedience affects others. You can make that personal. My disobedience affects others. And fourthly, disobedience causes substantial loss. Okay? So I want you to keep those sort of running around in your mind as we look at a few examples from Scripture here. You know, it all started in a garden. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? (laughs) It all started in a garden. What could possibly go wrong in the perfect garden of Eden? But once again, Satan is the master deceiver. Satan is the father of lies. And in this particular story, Satan comes as the subtle serpent. Now, like I said, this story is is quite familiar. And yet it is foundational to all stories that follow. I'm not going to read these verses. We're simply going to, you can look at it, and I'm going to, um, to point to a few spots here. But you see how the serpent came to the woman. The serpent came to the woman and posed that question. Yea, hath God said. Yea, hath God said. It's a question that we still hear ringing in our ears today, do we not? It's a question that that we see in the world today. Yea, hath God said. But we don't just see it in the world. We see it in in churches. And we hear it in our minds sometimes. Yea, hath God said. Did God really say that? Did God really say that you should not eat from any of the trees? Is that what he said? And then he goes on to say, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Now, Satan caused Eve to question God's rule. Satan caused Eve to question God's message. What was God's message? Well, just look back, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. This is what God said. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what God said. But now Satan is coming and saying, did God really say that? Nah, you won't surely die. And so Satan brings a spirit of questioning. Questioning God's rule. Questioning God's message. He causes Eve to doubt God. He causes Eve to discard the truth until the point that God's will is simply ignored. And and I just say, what in the world? Can you believe that? What a bold and blatant disobedience. I mean, this is what God had said. And by the time it was all done, they had completely disobeyed. But see, it didn't start there. Satan didn't start right there. But he started by explaining away the word. Explaining away God's message. And that's exactly what he still does today. He makes disobedience seem quite logical. You understand that in your own life. He makes disobedience seem quite logical. You start rationalizing. Well, children, Mama said I should not get a cookie. I've had enough cookies. But I'm hungry. And I mean, Mama doesn't want me to die, does she? No, I mean, Mama doesn't want to come in and see a a child that's just laid out done. Well, I mean, we have to eat to stay alive. And plus, Mom said I have to work in a little while, and I can't work if I don't eat. I mean, I, I have to eat. So we, we begin to rationalize. That's just on a children's level, but yet as, a, as adults, we do a similar thing. We start thinking through it. God certainly would understand. I mean, he didn't mean for me to live an unhappy life, right? He has better things in store for me. Maybe I just misinterpret what he's saying. I can't imagine God. 
dear people, when God says no, that trumps all the pros we can think of. And certainly in our flesh, we think of a few. But you know the rest of the story. How that Adam and Eve were banished from that beautiful garden. And along with that came a life of sorrow. And ultimately, death. Death. Now turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Now in Joshua chapter 6, we have the famous story of when the walls came a-tumbling down. Okay, round the walls of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Victory at Jericho in a very amazing way. And so the children of Israel are just coming through a huge victory. Something that only God could do. And look how chapter 6 ends. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Wow. Our God reigns. God is in control. The Israelites' God is the God of all the earth. And he can do anything. And everyone was hearing about Israel's God. We move into chapter 7. And this is how it starts. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. And you know what one of the things that burdened Joshua's heart when that was made known, now what will all the people hear? You know, they had just, all the land around was hearing what God was doing in the children of Israel. What a testimony! But don't you think for a moment that people won't also hear about what's happening behind the scenes? Don't think for a moment that you can simply shout out the pretty picture and keep this one behind closed doors. Uh-uh. And that's one of the things that burdened Joshua the most. Oh no. What will everyone say? The name of the Lord has been reproached. Now what will everyone say? But in Joshua chapter 6. The command had been given. As we go into Jericho, do not take of the accursed thing. It will trouble the camp of Israel. It will make it a curse. Do not take of any of the accursed thing. That was clear. And so they went on through. And then as we move into chapter 7, we see that when the Israelites went up against a very small city of Ai, they experienced an embarrassing defeat where 36 good strong men were killed. And the name of God suffered reproach because one brother chose to disobey the revealed will of God. Just one brother. And we will notice how that disobedience affected others. Throughout this whole story, the emphasis is not on, look what Achan did, look what Achan did, look what Achan did. It's on, look what Israel has done. And Joshua desperately cried out to God, oh God. Now what shall I say? Oh God, what will happen to your great name? Oh God, what should I do? And God said, there is sin in the camp. There is sin in the camp. And you will not find victory until you have rid or removed the sin. And he goes on to say, I will not be with you anymore until you have destroyed the sin. Wow, that's serious. My presence won't be with you anymore unless you destroy the sin. And then you know how the story goes on. Joshua had the tribes file before him. And a family was chosen. And the 
families filed before him, and a household was chosen. And the, house, the households all filed before him, and, and Achan, Achan and his family were the ones that were chosen. And Joshua says, Son, give glory to God and confess. Isn't that a nice way to put it? Give glory to God, son, and confess. And Achan did. He said, yeah, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. And you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story was death to Achan, death to his family, death to his livestock, death to his possessions. In fact, the Bible says everything that he had died because of that. And you think that just a little disobedience isn't a big deal? Well, think again. Think again. Your disobedience affects others. And disobedience causes substantial loss. Let's go to another story. It's in 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. And here we have a story about one referred to as the man of God. We don't have his, his name other than he is listed as the man of God. And it's a very devastating story. It's a very sad story. But I would like to read this story and make a few comments. Starting at verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 13. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar. This is this man of God. Cried against the altar in the word of the Lord. Notice twice it says, the word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes are, that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying that the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up, so he could not pull it in again to him. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine that sight? There he is, he's stuck. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. Now look at the response of the man of God. And he said, The man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord. There it is again. I was charged by the word of the Lord saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Okay, so notice here, notice what God is doing. Notice how God is using this man of God in a powerful way. He's coming and he's confronting the king of the wickedness that's happening in the land. Notice that the word that he spoke came true. Notice the miracle that he did. 
What a man of God, a man of strength, a man of conviction. He is, and then he is tempted from the king to come and have a meal with him. And he says, I wouldn't even do it for half of your house because God told me this and I'm going to honor God above anything. Now, in that day, to go and eat with someone was a, was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of endorsement. And he said, I will in no way, I will in no way be a part of what you're about. I will not endorse your wickedness and the leadership of this country. Here's a man that was doing God's will in a very strong way, in a very powerful way. He's doing God's will. Verse 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. Now, immediately we notice some strange things here. And there's, there's some things that we will not understand completely about this passage. They're a bit confusing. But we do notice something right off. So here is this old prophet of the Lord. And he's living in Bethel. Why wasn't he speaking to the king? Why wasn't he doing something about it? Why wasn't God using him? There's something funny here. It makes us, it makes us believe that this old prophet wasn't as much of a spiritual giant as you would see at first glance. Verse 12, And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon and went after the man of God, and this is said, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Dear people, we have a man of God who was doing God's will. And now we find a man of God that is doing nothing. He is doing nothing. He should be out of there. He should be way on down the road. He should be heading back to his wife and children. He should be heading back to his church. But here he is. He came through a great mountaintop experience. <clears throat> I deserve a little rest. I'm a battle-scarred man. <clears throat> Boy, this was a hard thing. I just came through this and... Look what happened. Look, wow, look at that. <clears throat> I deserve a little treat. I'm going to sit down and take me a little break. You know, you know how the devil works? You know how he tempts you? Men, don't forget that we're at our weakest point spiritually when we feel like we've really accomplished a lot. It's a dangerous place to be in, whether you're a leader in the church or not. We find a man who is way too comfortable. Verse 15. Then this old prophet said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt, not eat, bre thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. And the old prophet said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. Oh. Really? And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. Oh my. He goes from doing God's will to doing nothing to being deceived. You ever heard someone say that? I'm a Christian too! 
Oh, you're Christians? We are too. And you're like, you are? Reminds me of a couple we met a few years ago down in Durham, North Carolina. Are you all Mennonites? They asked us. Yeah, we are. We are too. I said, really? Where are you all from? Well, we used to live in Holmes County, Ohio. Oh. No idea now. You know, here we have a similar thing. I'm a prophet too. Oh, you are? Yeah. And the, and the angel of the Lord told me this. Oh. You see, all of a sudden, this young prophet, he, he starts listening. His ears perk up just a little bit. Oh, oh you are? Oh, and you're older than me. You, you should have more wisdom. You, the Lord spoke to you? Well, he had spoke to me too, but now you're saying he spoke to you. And what did he say? Oh, he did. Okay, well, maybe I had it wrong. <clears throat> God had revealed himself clearly, personally, to this young prophet. But now he was allowing someone else and their supposed revelation to now swerve him. Verse 20. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, forasmuch as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back, and hast eaten bread, and drunk water in the place, of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread, and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. Doing God's will, doing nothing, being deceived, now disobeying. Verse 23, and it came to pass, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the ass, to wit, for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him death. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him, according to the word of the Lord which he spake unto him. And we'll stop there. And like I said, it's a story that we don't understand everything. Something doesn't seem fair, does it? And yet there's some lessons to be learned there. And my point isn't to, to do an expositional uh, approach here this morning. That's not the point. We don't have time for that. There's lessons to be learned there. Here's a man that compromised. He didn't compromise with his message, uh, but he compromised with his conduct. One of the things that brought the burden of this message to mind this week was news that I heard earlier in the week. And the news was that an ordained man of much responsibility in another state was found to have been living a double life for years. A man who was a very gifted preacher. In fact, he was a bishop in his congregation and got around quite a bit having revival meetings. And after this man went to a, a very immoral place here recently, he was found out. And upon more investigation, it was found that he had actually been living quite immorally for many years behind the scenes. As a wife, married children, grandchildren, the family is devastated. The church is reeling. People are trying to make sense of it. 
That shakes me. That shakes me. And one of the things that really shakes me is just the deception that's wrapped up in that. In fact, this, this man, this preacher, well, he's no longer a preacher. In fact, he's no longer living with his wife. In fact, it's a, it's a devastating scene. But this preacher, just within two weeks before this, before he was found out, stood before his congregation and preached from 1 Timothy chapter 1 about the importance of holding on to faith and challenged people not to make shipwreck of their lives. And he said that there are many that we know that have done that in our communities, some in our churches, some even our families. In another message, he talked about a a man that he knew of that had five wives, but still likes to talk about Jesus. And I I just shake my head and say, how can that be? How can that be? The deceitfulness of disobedience. The deceitfulness of disobedience. You know, in each of these examples that I shared, we see a similar progression. There is a good start, and then temptation comes. And there is a thinking it over. There is an openness to Satan's suggestions. All of a sudden, there's a listening ear. Oh, I didn't think about it that way. That does make sense, come to think of it. And on and on. And then there's the point where disobedience seems logical. And then there is a lack of sensitivity to the conscience. There's a lack of sensitivity to the promptings of the spirit. And then there is a taking the bait. And then there is a paying the price. We see this similar progression in each example, in each story. But the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. The Bible says, neither give place to the devil. That's what the Bible says. And so I ask you this morning, what will you believe? Who will you obey? You see, what you do with the truth, dear people, ultimately determines your destiny. What you do with the truth ultimately determines your destiny. In conclusion, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, in the context of this passage here, is, is the, godliness, the godlessness in the last days. Extreme godlessness in the last days. That's the context. And the Apostle Paul writes here to young Timothy, verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, so that's the reality. In the last days, you must be aware of that. That should not surprise you. There will be men out there that may come to you as an angel of light, but they are instead really working for the, safe, for the devil. They are deceiving. They are being deceived. But continue thou... In the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. So we have this picture of the godlessness in the last days. And then we have, but you, but you continue in the things that you have heard. That you have learned and been made assured of. Verse 15, and that from a child, and really pretty much all of us in this room fit into this category. That from a child we have heard the Holy Scriptures, we have been taught the Holy Scriptures. 
You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Think of that in relation to discerning truth, discerning deception, knowing the difference. The Scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so I just simply challenge you, beware of deception, but take hold of the truth, dear people. Take hold of the truth. Once again, I believe that deception is a major tool in the last day's toolbox that Satan carries with him. Beware of deception, but take hold of the truth. Quickly, we guard against deception by accepting the Bible as truth. It is the infallible, inspired Word of God. In it, God speaks. We guard against deception by accepting that. We also guard against deception by acknowledging that God's word is relevant for all generations. The Bible is not just some book for some time. It's not just a message for some people back there some time ago who wore robes. <laughs> no, the Bible is God's message for you today. We have to acknowledge that God's word is relevant for all generations and it's unchanging. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The word of the Lord endures forever. And we guard against deception by applying the word to our lives. By ordering our daily lives in accordance to the word of God. That means obeying it. But be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you know how to handle the scriptures? Do you know what to do with it? Do you know how to apply it to your lives? You need to. If you're a believer, you need to, you need to dig in. You need to know. You need to put effort. You might be great in business. You might be fantastic at sports. You might can shoot a 150 class buck. But do you know how to apply the word to your life? You need to know. A person that is backslidden has almost invariably lost out in the word of God. I just leave this with us. May God open our eyes to Satan's deceptive ways. And may we zealously fight the good fight of faith, armed with the truth. May God help us to that end. We'll call for a song.